Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. If you can believe it, we have two sermons left in the book of Philippians. We've got today and then next week, and then we're done. And I hope that you have uh, gotten just as much out of it as I have. It's been a joy to go through this book. It's been a joy to preach it. It's been a joy to learn from it. And I hope it's been a joy to you as well. I'd like to start this morning by thinking about uh, a statement. It's, I think it's fair to say that most people, most people want peace. Would you agree with that statement? I think most people want peace in their lives. I don't know of anyone who simply loves chaos. Now, I'm sure there, there's some out there who thrive on it, yes, but I think for the most part, people do desire a life of peace. Chaos comes in many forms, though, and sometimes it is fun, let's be honest. Sometimes in the craziness of life, as a dad, playing hide-and-seek with your kids, the chaos of that can be a little fun. However, let me admit to you that I'm the first one ready to be done. I'm looking for the couch and a cold drink way before the kids are. But I think peace is something that we all desire. Now let's define it for a second. What is peace? Peace can be defined as a state of concord. Peace can be defined as a state of concord. Don't you love it when your definitions need definitions? Yeah, state of concord. What in the world is it talking about? Concord, that's agreement. It's harmony. In fact, the Greek word for peace is the word arene, which means a state of well-being. Arene was used like the Hebrew word shalom. People would often greet each other by saying something like peace to you or peace to this house. Most people want peace, but how do we get it? I saw an article on Psychology Today where they gave seven tips to acquiring peace. Seven tips to acquiring peace from Psychology Today. These are on the screen. You can read them. Number one, beware of peace pickpockets. By that, I take it to mean people who want to steal your peace. <clears throat> Number two, take a mental health day or morning or moment. I need those all the time. Number three, rethink your should-do an ought-to-do list. In other words, what they're trying to say here is don't listen to the guilty voice in your head that says, you know, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. Number four, they say kick the approval habit. By that, they mean the habit that we have of wanting to be liked by others. Number five, they say be still or rest. I like that one. Number six, they say let the music move you. In other words, listen to your favorite music. That'll bring you peace, unless it's acid rock. Number seven, give yourself a quality of life checkup. Basically what they mean there is assess whether you're satisfied with the quality of your life and ponder what you want to change. Now, some of these sound like practical advice. Some of these sound like good things. Number five, be still and rest. Yeah, that sounds peaceful. Sounds like something we should pursue. <clears throat> but I do think that, and I do think there are times for certain kinds of practices like this, but the result of trying to practice these seven things is not going to result in true peace, true harmony, true concord, a state of well-being. Some of these things I would even say are impossible for us to do. Look at number four again, kick the approval habit. I am hardwired to seek other people's approval, as most people are. How am I supposed to kick that habit? 
without Christ? Or what about rethink the you should do or you ought to do list? Don't listen to the voice in your head, in other words. How am I supposed to do that? I'm hardwired to do that without Christ. So how am I to find true peace? We're in chapter 4. We've come through the bulk of the letter of Philippians and we reach the final section. And here, Paul's beginning to wrap things up. You even get a sense of that as you read that. In fact, in a lot of ways, he's kind of throwing out what, what seems like bullet point statements here. And he's got a few concluding remarks that he wants to make before he closes the letter. And he's following the first century pattern of an epistle. It was very common when you're writing a letter in the first century to have kind of closing remarks like this where you would just throw out some bullet statements. A lot of these bullet statements would be things like, you know, live a good life, you know, be encouraging, things like that that people would write. But as we have seen elsewhere in the book of Philippians, Paul takes a a secular practice and he Christianizes it. A lot of times in an epistle, there wouldn't be necessarily a connecting theme with these last bullet points. It would just be things that the author was throwing out there. But here, there is a running theme throughout these last verses. And that theme is the theme of peace. He's speaking about peace. So if you will, follow along with me as I read verse 2. <clears throat> Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I want to give you three points to finding peace. And your point number one this morning is seek peace in your relationships by focusing on Christ. Seek peace in your relationships by focusing on Christ. Now, I mentioned a few weeks back that Paul spends a good chunk of Philippians on the theme of unity and he had a specific purpose in mind. He was driving toward this moment between these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Now, we don't know what the conflict between these women was, but honestly, it doesn't matter. The point is, they were in conflict so much so that, get this, they are immortalized in the Bible over this conflict. For 2,000 years, Christians have known these two women and known that they were in conflict. How'd you like to be known for that? You know, one day, we'll be walking around in heaven, we'll meet these women, and we can ask, so what was the issue between you guys? If at that point we even care. So what does Paul tell them to do? There's conflict. What are we supposed to do about that? Paul says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Notice he doesn't tell them which way to agree. He doesn't say, Yodia, knock it off and agree with Syntyche. Or he doesn't say to Syntyche, knock it off and agree with Yodia. He simply says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Now that word for agree, it's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 2, when he tells the entire congregation to be of the same mind. It's the word phreneo. In fact, it's popped up in Philippians throughout our study. And it is, it's, it's telling them to have the same, excuse me, He's telling them to have the same thoughts or attitudes or to be intent on the same goal. He's telling them to be unified. Agreeing in the Lord is to have both their minds on the Lord. Think on the Lord. Put your minds on the Lord. Let your attitudes be on the Lord. What happens when we do that? We have relational peace. He's not actually even telling them, okay, you know what? Draw straws, figure out which way you want to go to solve this thing and then do that. He's not telling them that. He's simply saying, both of you put your minds on Christ. Agreeing in the Lord is putting our minds on Christ. 
Because peace doesn't happen when we try to please the other person. You know, when our, when our thoughts are consumed with how we can make this person happy, or, or maybe even just let's just come to a point where we can tolerate each other, that's not peace. That results in running yourself ragged. Some of you have experienced this, and maybe you're experiencing this even today, where you're running yourself ragged trying to please somebody. Maybe there's even a relational conflict, and you feel guilty about it, and you're trying to please, you're trying to make them happy. And it's not resulting in peace. It's resulting in stress. And I'm not saying we don't love. Of course we love. I'm not saying we don't go out of our way to help each other. Of course we do. But we don't allow ourselves to be consumed over relational conflict. Remember, Anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol, even being hyper-stressed over a relational conflict. Seek the Lord. Focus on Christ. Don't forget Romans twelve eighteen, which reads like this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If we're keeping our eyes on Christ, doing what we can to bring peace to a relationship, even if it's not reciprocated, you're doing your part. So don't allow it to consume you, be at peace. Seek the Lord. Seek to reconcile, absolutely. Apologize for whatever mistakes you have made and then let it go and be at peace and focus on the Lord. Paul has more to say on this. He says in verse three, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, he addresses this person that he just simply calls true companion. I asked you also true companion. Now, who is that? It's a singular uh, noun, so it's, it's not talking about the entire congregation, and there's a lot of debate about who this individual was, but the bottom line is we don't know. He's addressing somebody here. The person who was being addressed here obviously knew who they were, but the significant thing is that the division between Yodia and Syntyche was so much so that Paul thought it necessary to bring in a mediator. And that's who this true companion is. Paul is inviting this mediator to stand between them. And the picture that comes to mind when we think of mediating a relationship is the book of Philemon. Paul himself actually acts as a mediator between Philemon and Onesimus. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. He says here in Philippians 3, he says, help these women. That word help there is actually a word that means to bring back together. It was used in Luke chapter 5. Remember when the disciples caught the great catch of fish so much so that they, they couldn't contain it all and they had to call for others to help them? It's the same idea. It's actually the same word there. Help them come together so we can bring this mass of fish to the shore. The idea here as a mediator is to bring these two people together in the Lord. Some situations require a mediator. And you know what? I've been on both sides. I've been one who needed mediating And I've been the mediator. And I can tell you this, neither one is fun. But it's important. And sometimes we need a mediator because honestly, we can get so wrapped up in the emotion of an unresolved conflict that we can't see what truly needs to be done. So Paul is inviting this person in. And can I just leave you with this thought? Relationships are messy. We're broken people in a broken world and relationships are messy and we just need grace with each other. We really do. We just need grace with each other. You might think, why worry about it? Why worry about unresolved conflict? If there's unresolved conflict between me and somebody else, okay. You know what? If that person wants to do their thing over there, I'm just going to go do my thing over here, and let's just not get in each other's way. 
Let's do the whole Gilligan and Captain thing. We'll draw a line through our hut. He stays on his side. I'll stay on my side. Why even worry about resolving it? Paul actually gives us two reasons why we should be worried about resolving it. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So the first reason Paul says this is a reason why we should resolve conflict is because you have a history. These women had a history. They labored with Paul in the gospel. How? We're not sure how. It might have had something to do with getting the the church of Philippi started. We don't know. But there was some kind of history with their friendship. They had at one time been in harmony, and Paul's like, don't lose that. You have a history. You have a relational history, and this conflict is threatening to lose all that. Don't lose it. We should take a lesson from this and and resolve uh, personal conflict to preserve what we have with each other, to preserve what we've built with each other. Something else he actually says in here is that, you know, others are affected by this conflict. You know, when you're in conflict with somebody else, it doesn't just affect you too. It affects the people around us. And when two people are in conflict in the church, it affects the church. He pulls in this person, Clement. He says, somehow this man was, was involved in the work of the gospel. We don't know the details of the situation, but he pulls in Clement, who's being affected by this relationship, by, the, by this conflict. Relational history was at stake here. And this history actually involved more than just Yodi and Syntyche. It involved multiple people within the church. So one reason that we should resolve conflict is because there's history. We don't want to lose that. And another reason is because we're going to spend eternity together. Paul just hints at this. Let's read it, read it again. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, why in the world would he put it that way? What is the book of life? If you look on screen, Revelation 20.15 reads like this. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is a record that holds the names of everyone who by faith depends on Jesus for salvation and not their own strength. It's a book that's in heaven. What does it look like? I have no idea. It's a book that's in heaven, and if you hold to Christ Jesus as your Savior, your name is in that book of life. And it's almost like Paul is just subliminally letting them know, hey, you're going to spend eternity with each other. Get along now because you have all of eternity to spend with each other. Let's work on our relationships now. That's another reason why we should resolve personal conflict. Do you remember we looked a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 20, where it tells us that we're citizens of heaven. Remember that? We are citizens of heaven. We're not going to be citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And I challenge you then to act like citizens. Part of acting like citizens of heaven is resolving our personal conflict now. So let's choose to resolve that. Let's get along because I got news for you. You're going to spend eternity with each other. Let me just add something here. Let me just ask a question. Is your name in the book of life? I don't think Paul's speaking hyperbole here. I think there is an actual book where God records the people who have accepted his son by faith. Is your name there? Where is your eternal destiny? Are you depending on Jesus 
to get to heaven? Or are you thinking that you're going to get to heaven because of some good work or some good lifestyle? I got news for you. Plan B is a bad plan. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot be good enough. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. No one can. I can't. You can't. No one can be good enough to get into heaven. In fact, on the screen, read this, Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we all have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Salvation is a gift of God's grace simply received by faith. Rely on Christ. Don't rely on yourself. And if that's you this morning, let me challenge you to accept Christ. Let me challenge you to give your life to him. Let me challenge you to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And if you you need more on that, please come and talk to me or talk to one of our elders after the service. Church, seek peace in your relationships by focusing on Christ. Here's your second point. Seek peace in your emotions by focusing on Christ. Join me in verse four. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, show of hands. Who's got this passage memorized? That's it. This is like one of the most popular passages in the Bible. Like right up there with John 3.16. Memorize this passage. It's good for you. A lot of us have this passage memorized. Why? Because it hits at the level of emotion. Let me ask you another question. Who here struggles with fears, doubts, and anxieties? Oh, more hands than that should go up. Yeah, You all do from time to time. I know you do. I know you do. Let's break this down. How do we have peace in our emotions? Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now by this time, you are well aware of how often Paul brings up the topic of joy in this book. We've talked about it all through. In fact, that's why we call it joy. What am I saying? That's why the series is called Joy in the Journey because our Christian life is a journey and there is joy in our Christian life. And he brings up that topic a lot through this book and he tells us right here, rejoice in the Lord. It's so important that he actually repeats it, which if you know anything about Hebrew thinking, when you repeat something, you're trying to draw emphasis toward it. In fact, look at this on the screen. This comes from Isaiah 6. Isaiah finds himself standing in the throne room of God and the seraphim are calling out and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why do they say it three times? Because they're emphasizing the holiness of God. So Paul says it twice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice You know that word rejoice means to be in a state of happiness? That's what it means. And it's a command. This is written as an imperative. He's saying do this. He's saying you be happy. A while back, Heather and I were watching the show Monk. Any Monk fans? Yeah. There's an episode where the kooky police lieutenant Randy Disher says to Adrian Monk, he says, happiness is a choice. He's not wrong. And that's what Paul's saying here. 
Be happy. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, maybe at this point, you might be thinking, seriously? You know, I don't know about you, Pastor Ryan, but I've got a lot in my life that's not rejoice-worthy. Yeah. You know what? There's a lot in my life that's not rejoice-worthy either. Let me just confide in you that this year alone, our family's experienced pain, disappointment, loss, and discouragement. How audacious of Paul to expect us to be able to rejoice when we live in this broken world. How can I choose to be happy? How can I choose to be happy in unhappy circumstances? I mean, isn't that fake? Let's talk about that for a second. Isn't it fake to be happy in an unhappy circumstance? That's just putting on a facade. Yes, it would be. It would be. Plastering a smile on your face during hard times is a facade. It is fake. But that's not what Paul is calling us to do. He's calling us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The in the Lord. That's what makes the difference. We're not choosing to rejoice for rejoicing's sake. We choose to rejoice in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? That means looking back to what he's done. That means trusting him now for what he's doing. And that means looking ahead for what he will do. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. And that's how we have joy in the midst of our suffering. And let me add this also. Choosing to rejoice in the Lord doesn't banish the pain. I think sometimes we think that. If I just choose joy, the pain's going to go away. That's not true. It doesn't completely soothe our grief. You know, strangely enough, we as Christians can experience joy and grief simultaneously. I'm sure plenty of you have done that. We can experience opposite emotions, grief and joy, pain and rejoicing, tears and happiness. In fact, Paul even writes often about, uh, he expresses his pain and suffering. He does so in 2 Corinthians 1 where he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's the Apostle Paul. He says, instead, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's pretty low. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. Paul experienced deep pain and sorrow, but he always comes back to joy. It's a choice. And it's a choice that we make in the Lord. Paul continues. He writes in verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now that word reasonableness, it's, it's the word epiakes, which is really hard to capture the meaning of the Greek there. It has to do with not insisting on on every right or letter of the law or custom. In a way, it's being gentle. It's being merciful toward people when they fail. It's the opposite of bringing down the hard, the, or the, sorry, the strong arm of the Lord, of the law. It's not demanding retribution when people fail. It's being gentle. It's being understanding. It's being gracious. That's what he means by let your reason, let your graciousness, let your gentleness, even when they fail you, even when they hurt you, let your gentleness be known to everyone. 
Let me just throw out a question. How are you reasonable, gentle, understanding, gracious with the people around you? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Keep going. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Probably my favorite, or at least one of my favorite passages right there. Now, you see in verse five seems to be that your reason must be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It's actually a little bit of debate on this, but a lot of people agree, and I think it makes sense, that the latter half of verse 5 should actually go with verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And if we just, ha- if you think about it, if we just had that statement, do not be anxious, that honestly just increases my anxiety. I mean, it really does, because if I'm feeling anxious, and I know the Bible says don't be anxious, well, then I'm feeling like, well, I'm disobeying the Bible, so then my anxiety just builds. But when you put the latter half of verse 5 there where it says, the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious. Now we have a reason not to be anxious. God is with us. The Lord is at hand, do not be anxious. Let's talk about anxiety for a second. What is anxiety? In English, anxiety is often spoken of as a negative thing. You know, it's excessive worry. It's apprehension. In the Greek, it can mean that, absolutely, But there's a positive aspect to it as well. The same word is used in chapter 2, verse 20, when Paul is talking about Timothy's concern for the Philippian church. You might remember we talked about that. Timothy was concerned for the Philippian church. Same word, anxiety. He was anxious for them. Paul himself often expresses the same type of concern. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The word he used for anxiety in 2 Corinthians 11 is the noun form of the word he uses here in Philippians 4. So you see, there is a healthy sense of anxiety. We should be concerned for the work of Christ. We should be concerned for one another's spiritual growth. We should be concerned for the welfare of our families. Absolutely. So then what's the difference? He's telling us not to be anxious. What Paul is saying here. He's talking about an anxiety. He's talking about being consumed with worry to the point that you fail to trust God. We can actually be concerned about something and trust God at the same time. But when we let that concern drive us to worry and doubt God, that's when we've crossed the line. Many of you know my wife had surgery last month and I was told by the doctor that the procedure would take about 45 minutes to an hour. The day of, I'm there in the waiting room, 45 minutes, came and went. One hour, came and went, no word. The angst in me grew. And I'll be honest with you, I was consumed with it. I couldn't focus, I brought several books to read, I couldn't read them, I tried surfing Facebook, couldn't focus, I just ended up pacing. And and I don't know if you've been there at St. Mary's just watching the little TV that shows you what the progress is. That's the idea. That's the idea here. Don't be anxious to the point where you are consumed. So how do we keep ourselves from getting to a place of all-consuming worry? How do we do that? He tells us right here, in everything. 
In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I don't have to break this down for you. This is not some complicated Greek structure here. This is simply this. Take your anxiety to the Lord, because he's with you. Be thankful for who he is and what he's done. Take your junk to the Lord because he's with you. Be thankful for who he is and for what he's done. And you might think, well, that's awesome. I just do that and then I'll be flooded with peace? Sometimes. And I'm sure you have stories where you were anxious, you were worried, you were concerned, and you took it to the Lord and then you immediately felt his peace that's awesome. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes his peace is instantaneous. Most times it's a process. Sometimes he floods you with his peace all at once. Other times he doesn't. So why should I take my anxieties to the Lord if I don't feel any different? Why doesn't God want me to feel the peace right away? Well, because God's not a genie. And I think that's the point. I think this is a conversation that needs to be had because I think sometimes we read a passage like this and we look at it as a formula. If I just do ABC, God will do this. But God's not a genie. You know, let's just be honest. We're selfish beings. We are. We're selfish in our relationships, including our relationship with God. And a lot of times we approach our relationship with God wanting him to do something. And I followed your word, Lord but you didn't come through. God doesn't want us to want him for what he does. God wants us to want him for who he is. And I think there are times he withholds things like his peace because he wants us to want him for who he is. The same is true with your spouse. How many times have you been angry with your spouse because you did A, B, and C and they didn't give you what you wanted. At the core of ourselves, we simply want to be loved for who we are. The same thing is true with God. He's not a genie. You can't manipulate him. He wants you to want him for who he is. See, this is, the, this is what the Pharisees missed. They thought, you know what? If I just simply follow the law, then I'm going to have favor with God. No. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the Bible is to point us to a person to which we need a relationship with, Jesus Christ. So don't think in your minds, you know, I'm gonna bring all my junk to the Lord and experience instant peace. It doesn't always work that way. Bring your junk to the Lord because you love him and because he loves you. His peace will follow in his perfect time. So my friends, seek peace in your relationships by focusing on Christ. Seek peace in your emotions by focusing on Christ. Lastly, seek peace in your mind by focusing on Christ. Seek peace in your mind by focusing on Christ. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Isn't it interesting that so often the Bible goes after our thought life? Have you ever noticed that? The Bible goes after our thought life. In fact, one of the most famous passages, Romans 12, 2, reads, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. The Bible is after our minds because if you get the mind, you get the whole person. The Bible is after our minds. Did you know that the quality of your life is directly related to what consumes your thought life? The quality of your life is directly related to what consumes your thought life. Let me say it differently. Your, the quality of your life depends not on your wealth, not on your health, not on your job, not on your accomplishments, not even on your relationships. The quality of your life is directly related to whatever consumes your thoughts. So if you're consumed with all the what ifs, if you go about your day thinking about all the what ifs that could possibly happen, you're going to be anxious. If you're consumed with the next big thing in technology or entertainment or what have you, then you'll be constantly chasing these things and never be satisfied. If you're constantly consumed with relationships or finding Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Right, you'll never be at peace. Let's do an exercise just for a second. I want you to think about your behavior. More specifically, I want you to think about the behavioral habits in your life that you don't like. Let me ask it bluntly. What do you hate about yourself? You do that thing that annoys that person or you behave in such a way that really disappoint yourself. What is it about it that you don't like about yourself? Why do we do that? I'll bet it has something to do with what's consuming your thought life. So then what consumes our minds? You might say to yourself, I don't have peace, okay? What consumes your thought life? Let's flip the question. What should consume our thought life? Let's break this list down. These I would call the, the characteristics of godly thinking. The characteristics of godly thinking. Paul says whatever is true. Now that's a broad term. It's relating to the truth that's from God. It does include the Bible, absolutely, but it's including anything that's true. Anything that's true in our universe. From science to relationships to politics, he's saying contemplate what is true. Not what the culture says is true, but what God says is true. Think about what is true. Why? Because if we don't think about what's true, then we're thinking about what's a lie. And if we're thinking about the lies, then we're just like Eve. We're going to take the fruit. And that does not lead to peace. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, the word means worthy of respect. It's the same word that's translated dignified in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2 when Paul is talking about the older men and church leaders. It's what is noble. It's having a worthy character. It's being above reproach. He says whatever is just, or you could say whatever is fair, it means one who's doing what is right, one who's doing what is fair, one who is righteous. He says whatever is pure. Now this relates to sexual purity, absolutely, but it goes beyond that. Believers should not have any kind of impure thinking. He says whatever is lovely. This relates to things that cause, believe it or not, pleasure. Good pleasure. Pure pleasure. It's, it's admiring as admiration, rather, for something that's beautiful. It's creation, music, 
good food, seeing the church love on each other. That's what's lovely. Lastly, he says, whatever is commendable. That word could mean of good repute, uh, something that's praiseworthy. Think of the opposite. The opposite of what is commendable would be grumbling. One author writes this, it is the right choice of words that reveals deference and respect for others. So we think about whatever is commendable, whatever, is, is, whatever reveals deference or respect for others. And then he ends the sentence, Paul ends the sentence by saying, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, things that are morally upright or things that would bring commendation from God, think about those kind of things. Think about those kind of things. Now this word think is different than our word phreneo. It's the word legizomai. And it literally means to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate. In other words, the believer should consider these characteristics, dwell on these characteristics, be mentally saturated by these kinds of characteristics. John MacArthur says the key to godly living is godly thinking. The key to godly living is godly thinking. And Paul lays out in Philippians 4 how we're supposed to think. So how do we get there? What is a way that I can transform my thinking to reflect these characteristics? Paul actually gives us one way. In verse 9, look what he says. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, Paul points to examples. He's done this all through the book. He pointed to Timothy. He pointed to Epaphroditus. He's pointed to himself, and he's pointing to himself again. He says, you want to know how to get there in your mind? Watch me. Imitate my example. How do we get our minds on these characteristics? One way is to watch others. One way to mold our thinking to what it should be is to follow godly examples be encouraged by those who are striving for this godly life. Here's a truth. Developing godly relationships will positively affect your thought life. Do you know that? Developing godly relationships will positively affect your thought life. Let's just take a recent illustration. Two weeks ago, we were blessed to have the believers from Adana, Turkey here. I was blessed by their visit. Many of you were blessed as well. You know what? my thought life grew in positive ways because of the relationships I developed with them. I became more sensitive to their needs. I became more aware of their culture. And you know what? I just outright grew to love them. Couldn't even speak their language. That's what happens when we're influenced by godly relationships. Our thought life grows in positive ways. And let me add something else here. <clears throat> Your thought life and you know this, your thought life is a constant battle. Your thought life is a constant battle, and the way to win is to focus on the characteristics that Paul lays out here. Now, what I don't want you to do is to go home and think in your mind, I'm just going to think about these characteristics. I'm going to think about these characteristics. I'm just going to think, think, think about these characteristics. I promise you, you'll fall flat on your face in about three minutes. See, he's not talking about forcing your minds to think on these things. You know, just think good thoughts. Think good thoughts. You do that, you'll go bonkers. The point is not to be a robot. The point is to replace bad thinking with good thinking. That's the point. 
That's how the, the battle is fought and won. Did you know that in the course of your day, you'll have something like 10 billion thoughts come into your mind? That's one reason why we're tired at the end of the day, I'm sure. 10 billion thoughts from an endless amount of stimuli. You know, our minds are always working. They're always working. Data is being received by our senses constantly, and thoughts pop in and out of our minds all the time. Some good, some not so good. Every person in this room has experienced vile, awful, hateful, lustful, boastful, disgusting thoughts. Every single person in this room. Sometimes they just pop in our head and we're not even sure where they come from. What do we do with those? First, let me encourage you. Recognize them. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's easy. But other times it's not. You ever find yourself on a trail of thought maybe hateful towards somebody and didn't even realize you were doing it? Maybe thinking about negatively about something or somebody in a sinful way. You didn't even realize it until suddenly you're like, wait, what am I doing? Let me encourage you, number one, recognize when our thoughts are going astray. Ask the Lord for help to recognize when your thoughts are going away. And secondly, don't dwell on them. Push them out with the kinds of thoughts from Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Push out the bad with the good. So something lustful pops in your mind. Push it out with something pure. Something untrue pops in your head. Push it out with something true. A lie pops into your mind. Something like you're worthless. You're hopeless. No one loves you. You push that thought out. You reject it and you preach the gospel to yourself that says, no, I am a child of God who loves me beyond what I can imagine. It's a battle, my friends. And it's a battle that your Savior fought. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, what was he saying to him? You don't have to follow the Father. You don't have to do it that way. There's an easier way. You don't have to go to the cross. What did Jesus do? He kicked those thoughts out with Scripture. He just kicked him right out. He relied on God's word. He relied on God's truth to combat the lies, to combat the evil thoughts. Do you know that Jesus rejected every ungodly thought? Have you ever considered that? Jesus not one time entertained an evil thought. Not once. That boggles my mind. But it's true about my Savior. He lived a perfect thought life because his mind was fully surrendered to the Father. His mind was consumed with Scripture. That's how he did it. But you know, you know, where did that lead him? That led him to the cross. That full surrender to the Father, that full surrender to the Scripture, that led him to the cross where he was crushed for every vile thought that you've ever had. But it also led to his victory. It led to his resurrection. He fought the battle in his mind and he won, paving the way for you and I to do it as well. So my friends, focus your minds on Jesus. Focus your emotions on Jesus. Focus your relationships on Jesus. And that will bring you peace. 
Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are so good. Mm. Jesus, you fought the battles. But unlike us, you were victorious every single time. You fought the temptations. You fought the desire to despair. You fought the lies. You fought the kinds of things that we face every single day and every single time. You were victorious. You were perfect. You didn't give in. So we call upon you, Jesus, who is our peace, who can bring peace to our relationships, our emotions, and our minds. Come. We thank you. Thank you for being a victorious God. I thank you for being a loving God. I thank you for the work that you are doing in our hearts and minds right now, and I thank you for the work that you're going to do. So I just ask and pray, Lord Jesus, help us to focus on you throughout this week. Bring us victory, we pray, in the great and awesome name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said,